and welcome. This is ADHD Wild Women and I'm your host, Kat Ellinger. And today we'll be talking about anger. In fact, we're going to talk about anger for the next few episodes. And it might seem like a strange place to start because the last episode was all about embracing spirituality. It was all about these more profound levels of ADHD. And I think there's this misunderstanding in current pop culture that when you say spirituality, it's this kind of woo-woo, zen-type manner that people have. You know, shouldn't feel anger. You should be totally zen all the time. Everything should be a bit woo, a bit nice, very New Testament, turn the other cheek thing. And as a pagan, that's absolutely something I do not subscribe to because for me, I worship the divine feminine. And that, of course, also encompasses what they call the quote unquote dark feminine. And within the dark feminine, you can find very powerful and empowered archetypes in what they call the dark goddesses. And these were goddesses that just didn't mess about. They didn't take any shit from from anyone. You also hear a lot in New Age spiritual circles about what they call light workers, you know, highly sensitive beings who are drawn to light. Again, it's very centered around this goodness and this idea of calm and chilled and giving and quite honestly and this isn't a judgment on how anyone else wants to follow a spiritual path but I find some of it in the extreme to be very Stepford wives. I find some of it to be about women essentially being passive and full of light and smiling all the time and this is not helpful. I don't think it is helpful at all. And the reason I don't think this is helpful is because I subscribe to Carl Jung's theories, especially those relating to what he called individuation. Individuation, put simply, I think is a path that we're all, we're all familiar with this in 2023 in modern times. And it is this process of getting to know yourself actualizing your true self, what they call your true self, reaching your potential, having this belief that you are born with a set of talents and gifts and a certain road to travel, but certain things get in the way of that. So we often find within midlife that we start to try and claw back parts of ourselves that were very prominent in us as children, for me, it was art. I gave up doing art as a teenager, about 15. And so some of my process has been reclaiming art, reclaiming art as something for me, not some not performative or anything to do with producing you know, or being talented or being perfect, but just this joyful uh, experience, this thing that I have for myself. Because as a kid, all I did was write and I drew and I sang and I danced. And then life got in the way of all of those things and I stopped doing them. So for Jung, individuation is a natural process that we we begin in the second stage of life. We begin in middle age. It's absolutely organic. And yet some of us can get stuck. And so we can use certain tools that Jung developed or certain theories that Jung developed to, I guess, kickstart or enhance what is a natural process. For Jung, there were three levels of consciousness, I guess. On the top, we have the persona and the persona for Jung is the social mask that we wear. It's basically the ego and we need this to regulate everything underneath you know, but the ego is our, the face that we wear to the outer world. And it's really interesting because a lot of people rejected Jung's theories because he went further than Freud. 
saw him him as a bit of a mystic, a bit woo-woo in and of himself because he also talked about spirituality. He was kind of rejected. I did my whole degree in social sciences, not one mention of Carl Jung. He's just not taught. It's all the others and mainly Freud. And so it's like there's this rejection of his theories. And yet now, now and in the last decade, we see so much about masking. This is essentially what Jung was saying. He was talking about he was talking about a social mask that we wear. And that is the persona. And the persona is not necessarily fake. It is us. But it presents in a way that is um, acceptable to society. So the second level of consciousness we have is what he called the personal unconscious. Anything that's not, basically the persona is everything that you're conscious of, what you should be, what you should do, what you think about yourself. And then you get this other level of consciousness called the personal unconsciousness. And that is everything that is personal to you. So within the the personal unconscious, you'll find your traumas, your hurts, your experiences, your beliefs. But they're not conscious to us because the persona only allows us to see one part, you know, the things that we are aware of. And within the personal unconscious, you can have all sorts of stuff and it's not all negative because you can also have unrealized potential the thing that gets in the way of this is what Jung called the shadow the shadow self and the shadow self is formed by everything that is deemed unacceptable you know so for example I love to sing and I'm a terrible singer but I just love the feeling of singing. I, I just love the the physical feeling of singing. Right? I'm sure it's an ADHD sensory thing, but I find it therapeutic. And as a kid, I would sign up for these drama things. And it wasn't because I wanted to be sent to stage. In fact, I always took background parts or I liked to be in the choir. You know, I didn't want to get up and do a solo. It wasn't this... Uh, wanting to be on show but I just really enjoyed the feeling of singing and dancing as well moving my body but my mother wasn't encouraging of that and she actually would say things like you can't sing so I stopped singing or I would sing secretly but felt kind of shameful like if anyone had heard me I would have died on the spot and so about four years ago, I started having singing lessons. Uh, and I, I see now, I track this back now to this is when my individuation was starting around the same time that perimenopause kicked in. So like mid 40s. I signed up for these singing lessons, not to be performance ready and not to even sing in front of anybody, but to just again, recover that personal joy and good feeling that that gave me and I was very lucky that I found a singing teacher that understood this she understood this she understood I didn't want to go and do show tunes on stage and obviously the majority of her clients were that people who wanted to sing professionally and I just wanted to be able to sing without shame and so I did that but it had been in my shadow now the thing that Jung said was that anything that's within the shadow, it will find a way to manifest itself. It can't stay hidden forever. And I guess, again, we see so much Jungian stuff within modern pop psychology or all this talk around unresolved trauma or triggers. Now, triggers are something that Jung didn't describe them as triggers, but he talked about how the shadow self would emerge, normally chaotically or as if, out of nowhere when something was touched you know an old wound an old shame something that was within the shadow and so for Jung we shouldn't reject the shadow what we need to do is make the shadow conscious so that we can resolve that so we can this goes back to my very first episode where I talked about the women who run with the wolves the book and how the author of that, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, talks about 
Laloba, the bone woman, sort of singing over the bones. So singing over the bones to me has been the core of my shadow work. It's been letting this stuff out, you know, observing my triggers and actually unveiling what is underneath all this shame, all this feeling. Why does this thing emerge seemingly out of nowhere? And of course, with ADHD, we have an extra level of shame because a lot of us already feel impulsive and out of control. We wear our emotions on our sleeve. It's very difficult for us to mask our emotional state. And of course, that gets classed as emotional deregulation because we're supposed to be able to control it. And so I think for us, our shadows aren't as submerged or as hidden as neurotypical people. And of course, if you don't address the shadow and if you don't embrace the shadow, and this goes back again to the dark feminine as well, because it's about balance. You know, we can't be these happy, clappy, passive, always perfect, always on, always nice and nurturing people. But this is how we get classed as women. This is how we are supposed to behave. So women, not even just women with ADHD, but all women normally have an, an issue, an unresolved issue. And I say issue with uh, quotation marks, with air quotes, because problems, issues. I think this is perfectly natural. If you ask a woman to repress certain parts of herself, they are naturally going to surface because these things need manifestation. They need they need to be expressed. It's unhealthy not to express this stuff. We don't express it. That's when it gets trapped in the shadow. That's when it, it, it comes out almost out of nowhere. And then you're left thinking, what the hell was that about? And everyone else is like, <gasps> which was so much in my 20s. So many <gasps> faces. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about that on this episode. I want to talk about my own relationship with anger. Because before I started doing shadow work, I had this very strange idea of myself that I was an easygoing person. Now, I am a woman with ADHD and we are not easygoing people, right? We are intense. We can be dramatic. We get fixated on things. We can be passionate. We are vibrant and alive and all in and all there for everything that we do. We show up 200%. If we're really into something, if if something is uh, of importance or interest to us, right? But I had, I should say, my persona, my mask, had this idea that I was a very chilled and easygoing person, and I absolutely am not that. So the first thing that I realised was I was actually a very angry person, and that was a shock to me. I was a very angry person, and a lot of that was trapped within my shadow. It would manifest in what seemed like overreactions to certain things with the rest of the time. I would be super compliant and passive and easygoing. I was one of those people that absolutely had no boundaries. I would not express my needs, etc., etc. I don't think I'm an exception to the rule. The reason I'm talking about this is because I think it's very common, not just for ADHD women, but for all women, because anger within women is not socially acceptable. It has never been socially acceptable. And if you look at the narratives that we put around women versus men when they express anger, because men culturally in the West have certain channels where anger or aggressiveness, it's its cousin, are seen as being assertive. It's certainly part of that tech bro, Wall Street, super competitive business environment, that aggression specifically, and you know, these these more aggressive energies are seen as a plus. Men have uh, certain outlets within sport within all sorts of things to express anger. Whereas women do not. We are told point blank whenever we express it that it's wrong. We're either a bitch, 
and it's seen as completely unfeminine, completely unnatural to show any anger. And if you look at just reactions to women's anger, especially, say, feminist anger or righteous anger, you're instantly, um, you know, a feminazi, a bitter woman. Bitter is another one that gets attached or you're a bitch. Or on the other hand, we're quite often labelled as hysterical or unstable or out of control just because we sit there and say, I do not find this acceptable. And so what we need to find is a channel to express anger because I believe that anger in and of itself is not a negative emotion. It's a very important emotion. If you look at political change for a start, it's not a peaceful thing. It usually starts because people get pissed off. They can't deal with something anymore. And so it, it causes something of a revolution. Political anger, righteous anger, is one of the most powerful energies that we have. And on a more personal level, quite often when we feel anger, it's an alarm. It's telling us that something is is crossing our boundaries, it's conflicting with our beliefs. I'm not saying that anger is always right, but it is a preservation mode, it is warning us, it is saying something is disrupting our boundaries, something is conflicting with our beliefs, with us, and therefore I see anger. Anger is always an opportunity to look at things like within yourself, your own beliefs, your own experiences. It's an it's a interesting exercise to explore trauma and release that, you know, and there are so many positive things about anger. But the first thing we have to do is name that anger and own that anger. Now, which is very hard to do as a woman because we're taught to feel a lot of shame about anger and we're also taught to question ourselves. Did I overreact? Am I being hysterical? You know, instantly question ourselves. Whereas you see with a lot of men, they won't question it. They are absolutely 100% right You know that their anger is justified. You know, And I'm not saying that is, a, is an ideal either, but somewhere in the middle where any time that we feel anger, we stop and we say to ourselves, what is this about? What is this about? Because when we repress that anger and it ends up within our shadow, that's when the problems come. Because again, I'm speaking largely from personal experience, but then within my studies, I found that this is a common experience. It's not something that is exclusive to me. I internalized that anger and it manifested largely as shame, as lack of boundaries, and then in its most self-destructive form as an eating disorder. You know, and I didn't, and I did so much work on my eating disorder and it, it took me years to make this connection that part of my eating disorder, not all of it, but part of it was linked to this self-harm because of anger. But if you'd asked me, are you angry? I didn't feel that anger. I, I was very Stepford in a way. I would say, no, I'm not angry. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then it would eventually come out at points like something seemingly tiny, I would crack. You know, I was uh, the very typical passive aggressive woman. You know, things would build up, build up. People would cross my boundaries. They'd put on me. I'd become more and more resentful. That that anger would turn into into resentment because I wasn't addressing how these things were crossing my boundaries, how I was feeling. I felt like I had no voice for that because to voice that would be selfish. It would be wrong, etc. And then it would eventually come out or it would come out towards myself. It would come out in hateful, nasty, self-talk, horrible stuff that I wouldn't say to my worst enemy. It would come out in destructive behaviours like eating disorder, so binge eating disorder in, in particular. I had bulimia for most of my 20s and by my 
30s that had morphed into binge eating disorder. So there's all this stuff going on and it's all directly linked to anger. And the way I was able to, and it's a work in progress, right? I'm not saying it's perfect. I still feel levels of shame in expressing my needs, in expressing that I am angry, but nowhere near how I was. And all that kind of came out during the process of doing shadow work and actually naming this anger and seeing in some of it was petty but a lot of it was linked to uh, feeling taken advantage of uh, feeling walked over feeling like I couldn't have a voice and it's quite interesting that a very wise friend of mine said during the middle of this this process as it was emerging who's also menopausal she said to me but it's not bad because there's a part of you that's sticking up for yourself that believes in you and I thought that's a really good way to think of it because it works a lot of my anger that suddenly started to pour out during Perry uh, was very righteous it was very connected to being disrespected or exploited or taken advantage of. So it was like this friend that was stepping in for me and saying, hey, don't you do that. But it was still very much within my subconscious, my unconscious. And so I couldn't, like I had no control over it and it would appear and I'd be like, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> like, what is that? I'd end up in a, like a massive row over something that just seemed so small. And then I'd look back on it when I actually started to sit down and consciously think, what was that about? You know, it was linked to huge traumas, complex traumas and things that had happened, happened decades ago, you know, that I was projecting because the shadow does like to project. It likes to project into situations and is especially other people, right? If you are not aware of your shadow or actively working on bringing the, the unconscious conscious, you will act out your project right and and it's like you're possessed and I think that's something we all feel as people women with ADHD because of the impulsivity you know but I think again impulsivity there can be driven by unresolved trauma uh you know it's just because we are more it seems more it seems more irrational but I think when we sit down and we look at what actually triggers this, there's nothing irrational about it. It's perfectly natural. It's because we have a lot of shame and a lot of self-doubt and we've had people overreact to us that it's been pushed into our shadow more. So we have a really interesting relationship with the shadow, I think, even more so than neurotypicals have because of these added levels, the extra emotion the impulsivity you know we have extra levels of shame and the re one of the reasons or one of the main reasons I started this podcast was you know everyone was talking about hacking your ADHD and blah 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 but I was thinking what about all the other levels to this because being a woman with ADHD to me seems entirely incongruous to being a quote-unquote traditional feminine woman we're either too much or, or, or too little all the time and anger is such a huge part of that and I do want to talk about the more societal levels of that in the next episode and also channeling that anger and embracing that anger ways we can embrace that but for today I do want to talk about my personal relationship with anger because you know it was very much linked to to the trauma of having ADHD in my in my teens and I can track it back to a very specific period where I developed these ideas of what was acceptable and what wasn't. As a kid, I wasn't that angry, although I would get jealous. And I won't go into the mechanisms of that, but I would get very jealous and I would act out because I felt neglect. Well, I was neglected by my mother. I was neglected and so if I saw her within her persona state 
acting out and giving other children, especially my younger brother, attention, I would act out aggressively. I would get very angry and I would get into trouble for that. And nobody ever asked me why I was angry. And if I look at that, I was a, a very confused kid who didn't feel like I fit in. And I developed, I think by the age of eight, actually, quite clearly, this feeling that life was unfair. And that might sound like a bit of a brat, but I can link that specifically to the fact that I was neglected, that I was misunderstood, that I was mistreated. I went to school, I first started school in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, there was no uh, neurodiversity understanding then. It was getting slapped around the head with a board rubber or they even had the cane when I was at primary school, though girls got wrapped with a ruler on the back of their knuckles because they somehow thought that was uh, better for girls than giving them the cane. So it was this bizarre thing that everything, as soon as I started school, I was immediately unacceptable. And there was this part of me as a kid that was very angry about this in a very kid-like way. You know, it's not fair. But it wasn't fair, right? That kid knew it wasn't fair. And I never let go of that kid. That kid ended up in my shadow. She's still there, but I'm very much aware of her. And I'm very much aware of her speaking. But as I got older, I repressed her so much. And that's where the eating disorder came in. Because that little kid would arise going, that's not fair. And I would stick a lollipop in her mouth to shut her up. And that's how I dealt with it. I didn't want to listen to her. Nobody wanted to listen to that kid then. And I didn't want to listen to that kid several years ago. It's like you're too much of an inconvenience. You're making a scene. And my mum was one of those people that couldn't have a scene. You know, she couldn't have me making a scene. And I used to go, you know, when I felt something was unfair as a kid, I would bawl. <laughs> like I was one of those kids. And there was no stopping me because of my ADHD. I would just have to express it. And being over emotional and over expressive, that was something that wasn't allowed by my mother because she's like one of these very tightly controlled and repressed, austere people. So someone making a scene, that was awful. You know, that was absolutely embarrassing to her. And I can understand it now from her point of view as well because she was just as repressed. And it's not something that we do consciously when we pass these things on. But of course, that taught me anger and saying this isn't fair. There's no room for that. Just shut up or you're going to get punished. And so it starts there. My ADHD manifested in a very typical way. If you look at studies about women that have been diagnosed with ADHD, it's very similar almost across the board, although obviously there are certain exceptions to that rule. But by and large, girls are seen as better at masking their ADHD. And we tend to be mostly, although not exclusively, the dreamy, inattentive subtype. A lot of us are academically very able, so that doesn't get picked up. We don't really have these more hyperactive, what they call behavioural issues. Again, I'm using air quotes because I hate using problems, issues, you know, things that are perfectly natural expressions to us, but labelled problematic by neurotypicals. But we don't have that. And so as a kid, I was very much that. I lived in my own head, you know, I was very creative, very chatty, so I was seen as an extrovert, I actually wasn't, it took me till my 40s to realise, you're not actually an extrovert, you're the more sociable, hyper side of you with all the chatting, that's ADHD, <laughs> you're not actually an extrovert, but as a kid, you know, I guess I seemed happy, I seemed sociable, but I was rarely present. You know, I lived in this absolute fantasy world and I drew and I painted and I danced and I sang and I was like this very dreamy sort of girl, but that's okay, right? Because it's girly. And I would have this other side of me, like I said, these aggressive outbursts when triggered by things that I felt weren't fair, but they were quickly stamped out of me because that was absolutely not acceptable to do that. 
then I hit puberty and changed overnight. And of course, now they're doing all these studies into how for women with ADHD, we again have this additional level where they know now that our hormonal shifts can alter how our ADHD presents itself. So in puberty and then during pregnancy, it can change over the course of our monthly cycle and then within perimenopause and menopause and then postmenopause. It's interesting that it's only just now that they're starting to look at this stuff, but they are. And what's revealed is a lot of girls with ADHD remain undiagnosed or as a demographic underdiagnosed because in childhood we're a little bit dreamy, maybe a little bit inattentive, but largely functional. And then we hit puberty and all the puberty hormones changes the ADHD and we suddenly become the impulsive, hyperactive type. And that's what happened to me around the age of 14. It was almost overnight. I suddenly became, my ADHD became very hyperactive and very impulsive. And I had so much anger. I was seething because it was like, the click to that different state, that faster way of being. And this continued throughout my teens, throughout my 20s into my early 30s. This was how my, I went from being the inattentive, dreamy subtype to the hyperactive subtype. And then it switched back. Within this period, anger was a huge thing for me. And so it manifests, you know, and, and obviously teenagers feel angry anyway. And because of those pubertal shifts because of the hormones involved in puberty so I also had that but it was more it was up to 11 like everything is with ADHD and I started acting out and I quickly got labeled a delinquent quickly got labeled a teenage delinquent a problem you know to be managed nobody diagnosed me I wasn't diagnosed till 2018 <laughs> Nobody even thought it might be a neurological thing, although this was the late 80s, so, you know, but but it was framed entirely as this was something I was doing because I was delinquent and my behaviour needed to be controlled. And this started to spiral, so I got into a lot of trouble at school. I started getting into fights with other girls. I started getting into fights with teachers, I got suspended, I then got expelled, I went to a special school, I started just going out all the time, like not listening to my mother, going to the rock club, you know, doing the FU thing, getting into trouble and so that was seen as something that needed to be controlled and eventually I was deemed so beyond parental control that I landed myself in local authority care. So I was sent to a children's home. And within the children's home, you know, I had several social workers. I had teen psychs. So I went to a day unit at one point where they specifically did a psychiatric, I want to call it care, but I wouldn't call it that. It was more like management for teens, but I had an art therapist, I had a, a psychiatrist, you know, I had all the access to all of these professionals, loads of professionals. I found one of my old uh, meeting sheets at the care home, some meeting about what they were going to do about me because they still couldn't control me. And they were talking at the time of sending me to a secure unit, you know, a ball store, just because they couldn't control me and I was so out of control. And so all those people, there's like about 12 people listed on that sheet alone. And there were more that I saw. Not one single person asked me, why are you angry? All they told me was it was unacceptable. And it starts at school. You know, at school, I was the weird kid. And I was chatty, but I rarely had any friends. I found it very difficult to connect to other kids. And I get to senior school and it's harder. It's even harder. And a lot of memories of that time just sat on my own listening to my Walkman 
And it didn't really bother me, but then kids would pick on me all the time. They would pick on me because they could make me cry. I wouldn't fight back, I'd just cry. The fighting came later when my ADHD rage came out and someone was picking on me and I fought back for the first time. They didn't stop picking on me and that's why I kept getting into fights. Uh, I felt the teachers were unfair. I felt that my mother didn't understand me. I, again, had this... Um, this this kid in me going this is not fair and it wasn't fair you know school was boring i was ignored the teachers didn't listen to me my mother didn't listen to me i felt different all of this stuff was happening to me in my body these hormonal shifts my adhd changing i felt scared and all i was told was this is not acceptable and it initially came out as rage which i look back and that was so that was a really healthy response to what was a very extreme and very unfair situation. That kid at that point had all the self-esteem and wanted to stick up for me and say, yo, stop treating me like this. But nobody stopped to ask. And it's really interesting when you go back and you start to unravel all the societal layers and all the conditioning and everything that was, uh, that was, that was being put on, on me. Um, you know, it wasn't fair, right? It absolutely wasn't fair. It wasn't that I was being, at that point, outrageous. I just wanted somebody to listen to me. I wanted to feel like I had a voice. And so not having a voice became a very prominent theme for me in, in, in terms of the more complex trauma that I collected. And I think that's true for a lot of us with ADHD because we're taught that our voice is unreasonable or unstable or weird or strange. And so by the time we get to adulthood, we have a great difficulty in expressing that voice or even feeling like we have a right to a voice. Uh, initially, the school sent me to anger management, which was hilarious. I had to role play this stuff with this guy you know, go into a shop to change a, change a watch. And it was completely unhelpful because it was completely unconnected to why I was feeling anger. But it was really about, uh, you know, get back into line, stop acting like this. And I would just troll the guy. I'd tell him I was doing crack cocaine and sleeping with 50-year-olds uh, and make up all this crap because he couldn't tell on me because he was a therapist and he did this whole thing, you know, what you say in these sessions is... That... So I would just troll him because I was a naughty teenager as well, wasn't it? Totally innocent. But I would just mess with his head until he refused to see me. And that was a recurrent theme. I would burn through social workers and psychiatrists and therapists. They, they get to a point and they say, I can't do anything with this girl. Take her away. And of course, what message does that send out? To a, to a teenager, I can't deal with you. And so I got pushed around pillar to post. By the time I was in, uh, 16, I was homeless, I was out of care. And by this point, I had learned to mask that anger quite a lot. You know, it would still arise where I felt triggered, especially disrespected or where I felt jealous and it was normally because somebody I cared about was and a lot of people I cared about were actually quite shitty to me especially men you know neglectful it was almost like I was repeating this thing with my mother but then they would be pouring uh, attention on some other woman and that's when I'd snap and of course that wasn't acceptable but for the rest of the time I could not even voice what I needed, what I wanted, if I felt something was unacceptable. And that can, continued right into my 40s. So I went from delinquent to entirely disassociated. It was weird because I felt numb a lot of the time. And I would be in an argument with somebody, like, say, it, it, not necessarily I could argue with institutions and people if I was arguing my case for something with a with an institution or complaining about something I could do that because there was no emotional connection but I could stand up for my rights in that way so people 
got this idea about me that I was something of an activist. You know, I was fine standing up against the establishment, so I had confidence. But really, I didn't because on there was a complete alter ego. There was like a doormat. And I got in a succession of very terrible relationships where I let people walk all over me and friends as well. I would gather, I was a people pleaser. I would gather these friends who just use me. I attracted, I was like a narcissist magnet. And I thought this is, this is me. And it kind of was me, but it wasn't my fault. It was because at that point I was so disassociated from anger as a warning or even being able to express that you have disrespected me you have disrespected me or this is what I need of course people will take advantage of that and it's really interesting actually for all my shadow work and my individuation and self-awareness and stuff I've done in the last several years I saw something on Instagram very recently, actually, by Sharu Izadi, who did the the Last Diet and the Kindness Method book, and she's just wonderful. She's a behavioral change specialist, but she is just so wonderful. And she shared this uh, Instagram post that said, "People don't treat you how they how you treat them." which was my model before, be nice to people and eventually they'll treat me nicely. People don't treat you how you treat them. They treat you how you treat yourself. And I look back in that time and I was so repressed and so disassociated from the mechanisms, the control mechanisms that told me when something wasn't fair, that I'd allowed that in a way because I had very little in the way of boundaries. And interestingly, it got so bad that I could be in the middle of an argument and really need to express something. And I would have an absolute mental and physical shutdown. I couldn't physically speak. I couldn't physically make myself say words. And the only way that I could circumnavigate that, and it wasn't a conscious thing, was when I really lost it. And then, of course, it did look irrational and over the top to other people. Because, And to me, because I think, where the hell did that come from? It would be back to the face. Why is, why is she acting like that? Because it was all in there. It never goes away. And when I started in perimenopause, I was reading Jermaine Greer's book on menopause, actually, and she talks about the importance of this anger that we feel. I think we think in terms of hormonal again, you know, a woman's angry when she's on the rag, when she's got a period or she's menopausal and then we become hysterical and irrational and we have this anger for no reason. But I've changed my position on that. I think that anger is there. I just think when we are having our period, uh, we're so, we've got no energy and no tolerance to, to mask because we're usually dealing with unpleasant physical symptoms like excruciating pain and all the horrible mess that occurs you know so we we don't have the bandwidth to mask as heavily and that's just all women not just women with ADHD again it's extra for us and menopause is the same because you your identity changes your status changes and I think we get to this period where individuation starts to kick in we start to look back on our former selves the the, the more sexual sort of period of our lives which are linked societally at least even though it's unspoken to fertility you know youth and fertility and all that shite um, and we realize how much we've been lied to and we realize how much we've repressed and how much we've compromised especially if we have families we just suddenly become aware of all the compromises and all the mansplaining we've tolerated and all the times that we've put aside our own needs and when we do, like for women that do put their needs center, they're often called selfish or unreasonable or bitchy, you know. And I totally admire women who do that and go against the grain and do that anyway. Because it's such a forbidden thing in our society for a woman to be selfish. To actually say, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, we we are expected to be in service, whether we have a family or not, whether we have children or not, that theme of service and sacrifice 
is so prevalent in our lives and it's just expected of us, whether we have boundary issues or not. Because I was always trying to be more acceptable because of my ADHD, I guess I responded to that in a, in a more extreme way to the point where I became the people pleaser. And of course, outwardly in my persona, unaware of all this stuff in my unconscious, I thought I was a feminist. I thought I was, you know, and I look back and I think, my sweet summer child, you know. So I get into perimenopause and it's almost like I wake up one day and I just want to stab every man in the face. I say this on a podcast as a joke because humour is my main coping mechanism. And the woman on this podcast, I was a guest on, it's about film, who was also supposedly a feminist, was so shocked when I said this. And I thought, oh my God, it's, an, it's even unacceptable to feminists, you know. Saying that doesn't mean I'm going to stab men in the face, but it seems so extreme to her. But it was a manifestation of what I was feeling, and I think it was uh, just all of this stuff coming up. But it was great because I was able to use that anger in therapy, within my own shadow work, even within my own spiritual practice, on a more personal level, to find out why I was so angry. I was able to resolve so much. I was able to link it back to literally two or three themes and they were not having a voice, not feeling respected and not feeling understood. And it was almost as if, you know, I hit 45 and that kid that was still in me that was screaming, it's not fair, had been locked in her bedroom for like 30 years (laughs) since my teenager, had suddenly burst out and started smashing up the furniture. It felt terrifying to me to suddenly have to process all this anger. I felt ashamed. I felt out of control. And I think a lot of the mental sort of pain that we have around menopause is the fact that we have to suddenly confront all this stuff. It's like it comes up. And maybe there is a hormonal thing in there as well, but I don't think it's purely hormonal. I think it is this shift that we get in second life where we suddenly stop giving a fuck about what other people think so much. And of course, around the same time, I get my ADHD diagnosis. I take my mask off and I think I'm never putting that on again. But I'm left with this person, this shadow that's pouring out and all of this stuff is pouring out. And I was in, it took a couple of years to process of real like, heavy work where I was in a space where I could be comfortable with that person because I hit with this realization you're not easy going (laughs) you're not easy going at all you're very angry and I would express that anger in my work and I use politics and I use feminism and I use and I use neurodiversity activism as well as channels to express this in a more Again, I say this in quotes, but healthy way, I guess. In a healthy, I employed my anger to bring about positive change. To really, like, dig this stuff up and deal with it, confront it. And it was my anger that did that. It was my anger that served me in my career because I was like, I'm not going to be treated like this because I'm a woman. And so it became a very positive force for me. But there was a couple of years where... It was so uncomfortable to sit with that and the realisation of how angry I really was and how long I had buried this anger and how much, you know, there was also a a grief that came with that, that how much time I felt I'd wasted in trying to be acceptable. And so I think as women with ADHD, you know, this is such a big thing for us and I see so many women in ADHD groups who are being so mistreated by their partners or their mother-in-law, their family, and they're doing these am I the asshole posts. And you see this person has just been completely disrespected and they feel so ashamed that they actually express that because we're not allowed to express that. Not women with ADHD, not any women. So they are asking, you know, is this me? No, absolutely not. And I think it's important that we validate ourselves and others like us it, that is important to us 
of course that's not to say we're not being the asshole sometimes i can totally be that and another thing i unearthed was my uh need to feel in control of everything which is such a a, a contradiction of the people pleaser you know so there was a part of me that took on the role of the people pleaser in a i guess a manipulative thing because i felt like I, if i could fix this person if i could fix this person i could mend the cycle i could get what i wanted you know so it was really unhealthy loads of codependency in there none of which i was aware of conscious of and then when i become conscious of it it was it was hell to have to accept it but i've reframed that now and i look at that little girl and like i said she's still there but when she surfaces i know how to talk to her now and i don't just stuff a lollipop in her mouth or tell her to shut up and go away or use this self-talk it's like you know very shameful very it's the voice of my school of my mother you know why did you do that why did you act like that i don't do that anymore i listen why are you angry because it was something that i was never asked and so as i round up this episode and we will have more on the subject of anger because i think it is it is a potential tool that we have for very empowered positive change if used mindfully and not allowed to just be uh, suppressed and then chaotically erupt if we actually own that anger and reject the shame actually see it as valid so my challenge for you today should you accept it is to ask why are you angry get out a journal write it down write like nobody's reading because it's just for you but why are you angry have a look at that and you will probably find that it's entirely valid so that is me for today i will be back very soon with another episode on I guess celebrating anger or rejecting societal societal archetypes of, of feminine anger and also looking at ways that we can embrace a more spiritual anger you know we don't have to be all kumbaya smiley smiley with our little flower journals our little flower bullet journals being all stepford we can be wild this is such a huge part of the wild woman archetype you know we need to get feisty. We need to embrace that as such a powerful force. Until next time.